You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Speak your name out loud. Then say, who I am and what I'm doing or not doing is enough. The learning that I was able to integrate was that um, losing the consistent use of my voice was an opportunity to strengthen the voices of others. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to Love Main Radio, show number 216, Spiritual Essence, airing for the first time on Sunday, November 8, 2015. Most of us accept many roles in this life, parent, co-worker, friend. We do this willingly, and yet may wonder if there is a deeper essence of spirit that exists within ourselves. Today, we speak with interfaith minister Jacob Watson and Hancock Lumber President Kevin Hancock about the ways in which they have more intimately connected with their own spirits and encouraged others to do the same. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Recently, I was in a local bookstore and um, saw upon the shelf something which caught my eye immediately and made me very happy. Just just to see it caught, um, made me happy. And this was the book Essence, The Emotional Path to Spirit by my friend Jacob Watson. Jacob Watson is an interfaith minister who writes about spiritual life. His books include Morning Blessing Letters, a book of daily gifts, and most recently, Essence, Emotional Path to Spirit. Jacob is the founder of the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine and co-founder of the Center for Grieving Children. Thanks for coming back in again to have a conversation with me this morning. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. This really is a, a wonderful book. I, Of course, it's my favorite color. It's blue, or one of my favorite colors. But it also has an Enso circle on the front, which you and I talked about. I don't know if we talked about it on the radio show, but you and I have talked about before the design of the Enso circle. Yeah. And then it, it's such a treasure trove to have it in my hands. It's such a treasure trove yeah. to you know be reading through it and thinking, I'm so proud of this person that has created this mm-hmm. book and brought it to life. Tell me about that process for you. It's uh, been a long process for starters. Um, a couple of years ago when I stepped away from running the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine, I still teach there, but I stepped away from the administration. I went back into my files and found the folder that said book and it was dog-eared and um, dusty, but it was full of ideas that went back 18 years, and I finally had enough time in the last uh, two or three years to put put them all together. 
and the book is the result of that. Tell me why essence, why is this getting down to the sort of the naked self so important to you? I kept running across that word in spiritual reading um, year after year and for me it captures the final point, the deepest place you can go or the highest place you can fly. Um, and that seemed important because all of the, uh, I mean the basic idea of the book is all of the, the natural emotions are leading to the spiritual life and that's not what we were taught, it's certainly not what I was taught. Um, I, I laugh, I, I chuckle when the students at the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine, they're, they come in the first semester and they're all excited about being in, in an interfaith seminary and they're very happy to be delving into the spiritual life. And then about two or three months into the semester, I, I get a call or somebody takes me aside and they say, Jacob, I really like this spiritual life, but I'm still upset or I'm still grieving or I'm still pissed off or I'm still <laughs> whatever. And I say, welcome to the spiritual life. Um, they had the, the erroneous impression that the more spiritual you become, the less you feel. And in my experience, it's the opposite of that, the more you feel. But you have, I think, a bigger context for your natural emotional life. You have, you have an understanding that the spiritual life, indeed, can hold all of your natural emotions. And that's a, once you, once you get there, that's a very, very comforting idea. In fact, your name, Jacob, was not the name that your parents gave you. True. Th this came about because of, um, essentially, uh, you, you took on the, the wrestling with the angel uh, persona. You've gone through some of this stuff yourself. Yes, yeah, and I think uh, when I first, again, years ago, when I first had the idea for the book, I called it a workshop book, and it was a compilation of the teachings that I've been privileged to witness and uh, take in in my life and also eventually began to teach myself and I looked at the book and it was too dry it was just workshop stuff it's stuff that you could read other places uh, and I understood it took a while because it felt very vulnerable to do this but it, I understood that I really needed to put my own self in the book to talk about my own life to big, give examples of the theory, if you will, um, the teachings and so forth. So I began to do that, and uh, that was the hardest part. I mean, the, the teachings are there and um, inspiring to me, um, but I had to really share what my, how my life was affected by the teachings, and that's what's woven into the book, including, as you bring up, the story about how I changed my name to Jacob. One of my favorite um, Gospels, some people don't exactly acknowledge that it is a, a set of Gospels, but <clears throat> others do, um, is something that you actually describe in the book, and I'm going to read this because it just keeps coming up again, again, and again in my own life, huh. and I think others will relate to it, and this is from the Gnostic Gospels. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Yeah. And for yeah. me, that's so profound because yeah. there's so much that we seek to craft in how other people see us or in how we live our lives. Yeah. 
but there is some in some internal essence that is that is going to remain no matter what what it is that we're attempting to uh, winnow out or yes. add to our lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we're often, as that, as those lines suggest, we're often afraid of that. We're afraid of our anger, or afraid of our grief, or afraid of our sadness. And they, they will save us if we can have the courage, and it does take courage, to bring those feelings up. Um, our American culture likes certain feelings and doesn't like other feelings, but the reality is that all feelings are valuable and they have something to teach us, uh, whether we like them or not. Um, I, I think of the Center for Grieving Children, and when families walk in the doorway, they're walking in, the sign outside the building says the Center for Grieving Children, and it takes enormous courage for families to simply walk in that door. And what the center provides is a safe place for people to express whatever it is, whatever feeling it is, anger, sadness. And I, I would add love. Sometimes love is scary too. Well, certainly that's true. And, and that one of the scenes in the book, which just for some reason it really caught me because I think that it spoke of a, one's love of family and one's love of um being raised a certain way and a certain set of familial values, but then having that be contrasted with one's own um, search for the truth. Mm. And this had you visiting your family with your girlfriend at the time and having, and your mother being very upset. I guess you you, you boated in fairly late at night yeah. and uh, she didn't like the fact that this was your girlfriend and that you were going to be maybe sleeping in the same room. Well, having a girlfriend was all right, but sleeping in the same boat was not all right. There you go. So it had her sort of, you, you left early the next morning. You got into quite an argument. Early yeah, le the left the next morning, yeah. you had your girlfriend run over to the dock next door and you picked her up on the yeah. boat on the way out. Yes, yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's an interesting thing about, um, I mean, I can actually, I can feel that having been raised as a Catholic and mm. knowing what, is said about relationships and marriage and yeah. how things are supposed to be and yeah. yet knowing how we feel when we meet somebody that we love yeah. and the conflict inherent yeah. and the conflict inherent um, in how we are raised versus how we um, seek. The gift from that experience for me was that I finally saw what my mother really felt. You know, kids are smart. They can figure things out. It's not like parents post the rules on the refrigerator, right? But kids can figure those things out. But after a while, they get tired of figuring. And particularly when, they, when we grow up to be teenagers, we want to have our own life. And the gift of that was my mother really got upset and angry, and out it came. And I could see that. And... I rebelled against that. I said, okay, you go down to the next dock and I'll pick you up to my girlfriend. But the clarity of what was going on was healing for me. After that, I didn't go home for probably two years. And that was, I needed that space. And then eventually I could find a way to come back home and, and uh, come back home as an adult, uh, living my own values after that confrontation, but it took time. It took a couple of years. 
You also went through a divorce, and Mm -hmm. you talked about how painful it was when the mother of your then two-year-old child was planning to move out of state, and how much anger you had, and how much sadness you had, and Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I I think we don't often give, and I'll call you a spiritual leader within the main community, we don't often give spiritual leaders the opportunity to be human, to go through Mm -hmm. things like divorces, and to experience very Mm -hmm. human things like grief and sadness and anger. How did that shape um, the way that you began to approach your life? I think in my work, particularly uh, in the public eye or doing workshops or training volunteers at hospice or the Center for Grieving Children, I've allowed myself over time, over some years, to, just as I did in the book, to illustrate what I'm teaching by my own stories. Um, that did not come easily to me. Um, I'm more of an introvert, but it seemed natural to do it once I began to, and people really responded. I could look out and people were nodding their heads around the circle um, of volunteers or students. Um, And I developed, by by doing that, I think I developed a, a, a layer, not a layer, but I developed my own integrity and it wasn't somebody else's ideas I was talking about. It was my own ideas and it was my life. And I could say, this is what happened to me. This was my experience, uh, living with my own sadness, living with my own anger, living with my own love. And when I began to do that, I relaxed. And uh, I think I dropped old anxiety about teaching or about presenting workshops and so forth because it became I was the same person in front of people as I was at home there was a um, I guess the word is integrity about it I just am who I am no matter where I am I don't uh, change when I step into a, a workshop or to to lead a, um, a class or a church sermon there's a pretty impressive list of people that you've either worked with or um, educated yourself on. And you also, you of course, have a training as an interfaith minister. Mm-hmm. Yes. You yeah. actually knew Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and mm-hmm. did a lot of work um, teaching the stages of um, grief and and mm-hmm. You also spent time with Gestalt theory, uh, transactional theory, so it's re- it's really interesting for me to read this book as mm-hmm. someone who has some small amount of knowledge in in these areas and see how you weave them um, weave these ideas mm-hmm. uh, throughout. Talk to me a little bit about Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Well, I owe a lot to her, and uh, I think the culture owes a lot to her. I. I I, I laugh because every so often the five stages comes up in uh, a book or even, do you know Big Nate, the cartoon? Mm-hmm. Lincoln Pierce, who, who writes Big Nate, lives across the street from me and we're friends and even Big Nate came up with a five stages of test taking or something like that. But it's uh, just a testimony to how much the Elizabeth's ideas are uh, part of the culture. And she was she was feisty. Uh, working with her, she had a training program, and she never quite told us how long it would take to go through the training program. It wasn't like a 
three-year training program or something like that. You were admitted to her staff when she felt you were ready, and that could happen you know, within a year, could happen within four or five years, or it could not happen at all. And I think that speaks to her one of her basic teachings about the integrity of people who have the responsibility, and it is a deep responsibility to work with other people, to do their own work, and to do it first and always, because in my experience, my own work is never over. So I have to continue to be awake and aware to my own natural emotions. Even that phrase was very instructive to me, that feelings are natural. Again, that was not what my parents taught me. It was not posted on the refrigerator. Uh, in fact, growing up, feelings were something to get rid of in order that you can make a rational decision. Uh, and that's, um, I've come a long way since that. In, in fact, for me, my feelings inform uh, and instruct my, my decision-making process. I liked the time that you spent on the victim-perpetrator-rescuer triad. Yeah. I think, th- for me, that's something that I have seen in my own life. I, I have seen in the lives of my patients and friends. Mm. And it's, it's really so interesting um, that we can, at any point, be in any part of that triangulation. Yes, you know, yeah. My... My, I don't know, my persona has always been rescuer because I was oldest child, doctor, you know, just you name it, that was me. Mm. But then I could easily see how if I'm always the rescuer, then at some point um, maybe I get tired of rescuing and then I start blaming the people that I'm supposed to be rescuing. Exactly, right. So, so that's yeah. the perpetrator. There's me saying, yeah. my goodness, why don't these patients start doing what they're supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. And then I start yeah. to feel victimized. Like, yeah. you know, poor me. You know, yeah. it's so hard to be a doctor. I work so hard with these patients. Yes. So I can, I've actually seen myself kind of work my way around the triangle over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. And it's so common, and yet I don't think most of us really understand what a toxic cycle this is and how mm-hmm. hard it is to get out. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you have some awareness of what's going on, though. And well, I've gotten there now. It doesn't mean I'm perfect at it, but at least, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm in a, you know, I, I have awareness. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the key to it is being aware of the pattern. Um, we have that in common, being firstborn. And that's a setup right away because if somebody else comes along, there were three siblings that came along in my family. Well, part of your unspoken duty is to help take care of them. Um, but I learned that role even more powerfully when... My father was away in the Navy in the Second World War, and we were living in a small apartment in New York, and we lived in an atmosphere of um, worry and fear about his safety in the North Atlantic, especially in winter. And there was one day when the doorbell rang, my mother, and I was now, I was two at that point. So I was just a little boy, and I followed her to the door, and the door opened and two uniformed naval officers stood there, and my mother fainted because she imagined, possibly, that they were arriving to tell them, my mother that my father had been killed at sea. That was not the case, luckily, and my mother recovered. But as a two-year-old, I could see what was going on. Two-year-olds are smart. And I put my hands around my mother's leg and comforted her 
that's the role of the caretaker. And that was the role that was most comfortable for me, especially as my siblings were born. And I lived that out, um, becoming a teacher and a counselor and a minister. And so I have to be really aware of not living out that role, but allowing my true self, my authentic self, to come out and be more, be more balanced. You even got to a place with the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine where you had, you seem very humble about the way that you've approached your role with them. You didn't want to be called executive director. You asked yeah. to be called Abba, which is Abbott, uh, Abbott yeah. Abba, Abba Father. Yeah. I think of the song that I sang when I was growing up, Abba Father, so yeah. the Abbott. Yeah. But then at some point you realized, I need to let down this. I need to set this role down. Mm. I can't be the father anymore because yeah. I think inherent with being the Abbott, the father comes People, I don't know, I guess, being on your doorstep, wanting you to provide that role for them. Well, another way to describe it is it's such a setup to, to be the focus of their projections. Yes. And it could be of what an abbot was supposed to be, but these roles go deeper than that because you mentioned father. Um, yeah, the, the, the leader, the head person, the guru, and... Uh, I, I, I didn't want to be the subject of other people's projections. I think that's um, not healthy for an organization like a school, and it's not healthy for me to continue in that role. So I moved away from that over some time and then eventually um, resigned from being the abbot. And that was, a, that was a healthy thing for the school, and it was a healthy thing for me too. And in some cases, um, you didn't necessarily move away willingly from caretaking. There was a point where you were um, doing a lot of grief counseling, and you actually mm -hmm. had to be, your office had to burn down for you to decide that that was no longer your path. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was uh, very much uh, you know, into a, a career as a grief counselor, and I finally began to understand that grieving families, grieving individuals were bringing me their wounded souls their wounded spirits and when I understood that I realized that I needed some more training and that's uh, that's when I went back to ministry school it took the office catching on fire to get my attention um, I mean there was a point where I was the, the fire had started and I got my family out of the house I had a home office at that point and I was sitting on the curb across the street waiting for the fire trucks to come and if somebody had come along and said, Jacob, this is going to be a good thing, I think I would have slugged him. Uh, at that point, it didn't feel like a good thing at all. It felt like a tragedy, and I was losing my books and uh, my office and so forth. Uh, it's really scary. Um, and yet when I look back on that, it was another sign, yet another sign, to pay attention to what was going on in my heart and to eventually make the transition from being a counselor to a minister and, and really uh, allowing the spiritual life to come forth in me and being better able and better equipped to help that come forth in other people. Jacob, in the book you have given us um, meditations and also uh, spiritual practices. Would you share some of these with us now? I'd be glad to. Find a safe and quiet space to inhabit. Introduce yourself to who you are at this time and in this place. Speak your name out loud. Then say, 
who I am and what I'm doing or not doing is enough. If you'd like a word to focus on, a mantra, a word that can be enough. I am enough. This practice is to do nothing. Not even meditate, not even sit in a particular way, nor breathe in a particular fashion. This practice is not to change a thing, only to bring a quiet, soft, relaxed acceptance to exactly how you are at this moment in time, reading these words, wherever you are in your life right now. Say it again. I am enough. That's all. No change. Simply being enough. I especially like the piece that you wrote about fog, and I'm happy that you're able to share that with us today. Here in Maine, the thick, wet fog rolls slowly in from the Atlantic Ocean. The fog gathers density from the white surf breaking on the hard black rocks, first at outermost islands, towering Monhegan, then low and long Damaris Cove Island safe haven for the men and women of the coast's first fishing community. Then the fog moves on south down to the hulk of Seguin Island, then to tiny halfway rock with its tall stone lighthouse. After touching stately Jewel Island and the rest of the Calendar Islands, the fog lumbers onto the mainland at Portland, touching and enveloping all of us. Just as the fog is all around us, we are surrounded and touched and loved by the spirits of all who have ever walked this earth. Allow yourself now, as you hear these words in the present moment, to know and to feel this spiritual blanket surrounding you like fog. Now, as you breathe, you take in the thick texture of love and goodwill. So it is at this very moment, here and now. See how you welcome that which is already here, already yours. Use your five senses, sight, touch, hearing, smell, taste, and the sixth, intuition. Now, here you arrive, where you can live your life today, now, Finally, you have arrived in your life and be, can be a part of it all. Now you can know and feel and enjoy and celebrate your being, leaving behind loneliness, embracing the fog as it embraces you. Be yourself without being alone, but with yourself being surrounded by all the love you will ever need, ever. Jacob, I reference the Enso Circle that's on the front cover of your yeah. book. And I remember the first time you and I spoke, and it has to have been four years ago now, and you were talking about your art and you were talking about Enso Circles. And now here we have one right on the cover of this precious book, this yeah. book about essence. Tell me why this has been important to you. Yeah, I was, I was so pleased to be able to use an Enso Circle on the cover of Essence, a uh, number of reasons. Um, and so circles are part of my spiritual practice. And so is E-N-S-O. It's an ancient uh, Japanese practice that combines art and religion. Uh, and the idea is to 
enter a state of meditation with your painting, drawing materials all already arranged and with the blank page or paper in front of you to paint an Enso circle in one breath and in one stroke of the brush. The idea being that that circle is perfect. No going back and saying, oh, it's a little too thick here, not the right color there. That's perfect. And then you put that aside and you have another blank paper and you paint another Enso circle. When I do this as part of my spiritual practice, I'll prepare 30 or 40 pieces of paper so I can keep going, paint one circle, put it aside, paint another circle, put it aside. Uh, and uh, this one has color in it, but you can do it using just black paint uh, as well. But I like the whole, the understanding of that, that each one is perfect. Good metaphor. Yes, the perfection within the imperfection. Yeah. Or vice versa. <laughs> yeah, right. I would encourage people who are listening um, to buy Jacob's book at a local bookstore, uh, Essence, Emotional Path to Spirit. That's actually not the only book that you can buy if you're going to the local bookstore. You can also buy Morning Blessing Letters, a book of daily gifts. It's really... Um, it is like giving a gift to yourself, reading reading this book, and I, I felt myself blessed by it. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad. I have something to add. The, uh, the original book, Morning Blessing Letters, is now expanded, and John Hunt, the publisher who uh, published Essence, has agreed to take a second book, which is a, a whole mo- a lot more of Morning Blessing Letters. There's The original book had 50, and the new book has 168. And I'm glad you asked about Essence because the new book will be called Essence, uh, not Essence, but Enso Morning, a, a compilation of 168, uh, with and each page has an Enso circle at the top. Wow. Yeah. That must have required quite a lot of meditation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I expect that'll be out in the winter. Well, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot, I've felt a lot, I've thought a lot um, mm-hmm. over the course of reading this book, and um, it's really been a, a privilege to spend time with you today and to have spent time with you in our prior radio show conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been speaking with Jacob Watson, who is an interfaith minister who writes about spiritual life. His books include Morning Blessing Letters, a book of daily gifts, and most recently, Essence, an emotional path to spirit. Jacob is also the founder of the Chaplaincy Institute of Maine and co-founder of the Center for Grieving Children. Jacob, do you have a website that people might go to in order to find yes, you? Yes, uh, it's uh, reverendjacobwasson.com. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing here and for be, mm-hmm. being willing to um, share your own essence with people. It's really it's a wonderful gift you're offering. Thanks, I appreciate being here. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires, and dreams, and make sure that the home you move into is as close to perfect as it gets, and she'll make sure you have fun along the way. Because while moving is one of the more stressful events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why, when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. 
Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, your connection to living right. Go to marylibby.com for more information. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. In the studio with me today, I have a fellow Bowdoin graduate, so go you bears, and uh, also esteemed member of the Maine community for many years. This is Kevin Hancock. As president of Hancock Lumber Company, Kevin has, is leading a sixth-generation family business that has operated since 1848. A graduate of Lake Region High School and Bowdoin College, Kevin travels often to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, where he is connected with residents and key organizations. He has created a nonprofit called Seventh Power to support initiatives on the reservation and has published a book titled Not for Sale, Finding Center in the Land of Crazy Horse. Thanks so much for coming in today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So this book is such an interesting book for me because um, it, it's almost it's it's almost a book about your process. It's not like here's what I have found out and I'm summarizing it all. It's like you're kind of writing about it as it goes. Yeah. In fact, this um, this was definitely a book that found me. I didn't uh, set out to write a book. I didn't even know I was writing a book at the beginning. I was just keeping a journal. And um, the story about um, Pine Ridge, the reservation, what brought me there, why it was um, so powerful for me, um, just kept calling me in. And I um, looked down at my journal one day and I said, oh my word, there's a... um, I'm writing a book. There's a story here that I want to um, tell. Your story is interesting because it began before you started going to the land of Crazy Horse. It actually kind of began when your family founded Hancock Lumber. And if I remember correctly, the town of Casco was incorporated only a few years before Hancock Lumber actually came to be. Right, yeah. So Hancock Lumber um, began doing business in 1848. And um, the way I put that in historical perspective is prior to the first cannonball being fired in the Civil War, this company was in business uh, here in Maine, and it's been um, owned by the same family doing basically the same thing uninterrupted ever since. And it um, and it kind of ties to one of the core themes of my book, which is this simple but powerful notion that we all come from a tribe. And in many ways, that tribe is um, is a blessing. But the real point um, to me here is that, that our tribes pull on us to act in certain ways, to do certain things, to have certain beliefs. Um, and, it, and as individuals who are all trying to find our own way, it's, um, it's important, I think, to reflect on the tribe we come from and understand the ways in which it uh, pulls on us in both healthy and uh, maybe sometimes not so healthy ways. 
your association or your closer association with Hancock Lumber came as a result of your father's passing away. You were in your early 30s, and I believe your father had lymphoma and had had it for a number of years, and he was in his early 50s. He passed away, and here you are. You're left, you're the guy. You're the, the man in charge of the company. And that's kind of an interesting way to have your life handed to you. Right. So, um, and it was not anything I ever planned or predicted. When I um, graduated from Bowdoin, I had wanted to uh, be a teacher and a coach. And I started my career at Bridgeton Academy here in Maine. And um, <clears throat> then my dad got sick and I came to work in the family business. And, uh, and right, he died in 1997. And at age 31, I was... Um, president of the company and thinking I was completely ready for that task as kind of um, a 31-year-old might, but um, not really realizing what would be involved and, um, and how much responsibility I think more than anything I would feel for trying to uh, do right by the company, the legacy of the company and the people who are connected to it. Hancock Lumber, because it's been around for a long time, um, it has an enormous reach. You have, as of the time of this information, uh, 10 retail stores, three sawmills, 425 people, 112,000 acres of timberland in Cumberland and Oxford counties. That, those numbers may have even increased since I since I, they were written. That's but that's a lot of responsibility. I mean, you're not. It's not just this. It's not just the. I don't know, the bricks and mortar stores, you're being responsible for a lot of Maine families and Maine forests. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a really wonderful organization, most importantly. And, uh, and, and the lesson I really um, learned here only recently is that, um, that I didn't have to take uh, or internalize the responsibility or the pressure for uh, doing right by the organization, that the organization was uh, filled with people who believed in it, who were talented, who are capable, who um, who are ready to share responsibility. And, um, and it was more about me learning to, um, to let go of the pressure a little bit, which, which happened coincidentally because of... Um, what I refer to as me losing my voice with the voice disorder I acquired back in 2010. Yes, for people who are listening, there's probably, you're probably thinking, huh, his voice sounds a little different than I might expect, and you have spasmodic dysphonia. Correct, uh, which was something I'd never heard of before I got it. Uh, most people have never heard of it. It's very, very rare. It, um, it affects perhaps 25,000 people total in North America, um, and it's a neurological disorder that only affects speech. So when you go to talk, uh, the muscle, the neurons misfire a bit, and the uh, muscles around your voice box contract, and they squeeze, and it makes um, talking very uh, difficult at times, painful. Uh, I run out of air, and... Um, I almost get dizzy, and it um, can be a bit of a challenge. So I, I woke up in uh, 2010 with this disorder, um, kind of right in the middle of the economic downturn, and um, was in shock for a while because I was like, well, okay, now what am I going to do? How am I going to help um, lead an organization without the consistent, comfortable use of my voice? And that... Um, 
turned out to be a blessing because it forced me to uh, stop in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise. It forced me to think in ways that I might not have otherwise. And, um, and it forced me to evolve a bit. It created an opportunity for me to evolve. So out of the, um, the disability um, came a lot more blessings than have come problems. It almost seems as though in losing your voice, you translated it in from something physical that's you know goes through the air and other people hear it um, into words. It's almost as if your voice became this book that you wrote over time. Yeah, that's that's um, how I've experienced it. So I talk about losing my voice physically, um, but. <clears throat> What I've come to think about is really searching for my own voice, um, kind of spiritually or, or emotionally. And what I, what I came to see when I lost my voice, voice uh, a bit and had to reflect was that, um, that I hadn't really been serving myself enough, which is a notion in our society that we, that we almost shun, as weird as that sounds. It's often about uh, sacrificing. It's often about uh, putting others before yourself, and those things are really important, but like anything, uh, to a point. And uh, for any individual that, um, that doesn't think enough about themselves, care enough about themselves, um, you end up compromising your ability to help others in the in the long run. So I started looking for a few simple ways to um, serve myself a bit more. And always having been a lover of uh, American history and the American West, and I was particularly interested in the second half of the 19th century when America's uh, Western expansion and manifest destiny ran into the Plains Indians. Um, I decided that what I wanted to do was to go see what one of the uh, biggest, poorest Western reservations in America looked like. Uh, probably no one else would have picked that as what they wanted to do, but it was what I wanted to do, and I made some contacts and went there and was keeping a journal, and at the time, this was the fall of 2012, it was only going to be um, just a one-time trip, but it um, the place just grabbed a hold of me and I kept going back and I was keeping this journal and the journal took it turned into a book but was most importantly um, what emerged was a kind of a what's going to be a lifetime connection for me with uh, Pine Ridge and the people of Pine Ridge and a place that um, <laughs> that is outside my own tribe that really serves a lot of my, my own uh, kind of spiritual personal needs. There's something about um, the pictures that you've taken for this book and also the way that you describe it that is um, is a direct contrast to the life, the physical landscape of the life that you lead. There's, it's, you know, I think about Casco and I actually drove on the way to Camp Sunshine the other day. I, for some reason, I got lost. I drove by your, one of your sawmills and there's trees everywhere. It's just trees you guys are all about the trees but you go out to pine ridge and there's some trees but there's mostly like openness there's grass there's it's like this space and so psychologically i think it must have been so interesting for you as someone who's gone from trees and trees and trees and trees and trees to okay here's space and here's time and here's the ability to um just listen to the grass as it you know as i walk 
over it or you know you spent time laying on your back like observing wildlife and mm-hmm. i mean who you haven't had that opportunity probably in your life no i hadn't really uh i hadn't really realized till i acquired the voice disorder the degree to which um I was really consumed by my roles, and and one of the things that um, that I write about in my book, because I came to feel, is that in this um, fast-paced, twenty-four-seven internet-wired world that we live in today, uh, especially in business, um, if you're not careful, it's always about bigger, better, more, bigger, better, more, and um, and it never ends. But unless you stop and think about for what purpose and for what reason. And you've got to really, I think, be intentional about putting um, balance back in your life. And for me, Pine Ridge was a place where um, where nobody knew me. I had no title. I had no role. I had no legacy. And I had no agenda, which is one of the other reasons I've done well there. You know, I didn't um, go there to fix them, which people have been doing for decades. I didn't go there to uh, rescue them. I just went there because I was really interested in the place, and I became really attached to the uh, people, and I like it there. So one of the things I talk about at Pine Ridge all the time is... um, is I go there for me. And I think it's important for them to, to hear that because they're used to, in that community, people going there um, for them. But they have a lot there in their spirit and culture and um, place that um, is valuable to others. And I think it's healthy for them to, to know that, 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 that they have a lot to give. Well, even in this idea, the the seventh power, um, that what there is out there for them to give is this kind of spiritual tradition of reconnecting with one's individual, I guess, gifts. And that that is something that um, I, I don't think that we often, we're all born from a tribe. So oftentimes we just kind of agree, all right, so, and I say tribe in a very broad sense, not necessarily Native American, but we sometimes agree to whatever somebody hands us. All right, you are the oldest child of this family and you're going to have these responsibilities. And that doesn't necessarily come from inside of ourselves. That comes from outside of ourselves. But if you reconnect with nature, if you go on a vision quest as you did, you can really hear your own heart more clearly. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, it, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that's really what my book is about. It's about uh, being self-aware in a, in a world that um, is very busy and which our tribes pull on us. I think it's possible to live years, decades, or a life without really knowing fully who uh, you are. And uh, part of being aware is to recognize the impact your tribe has on you. So Pine Ridge is a really good example of this. It's, um, it's the biggest, statistically poorest uh, reservation in America. Unemployment is 90%, 9-0. So we had a national crisis a few years ago when unemployment reached 9%. There it's 90. There are people... Uh, who don't know anybody in their family who's ever had a traditional job. And um, and you can look at that community and say, well, um, they just need to get their act together. They just need to get on um, 
you know, and 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 make a move. But um, but it's not that they're missing anything. These are really smart, creative, uh, resourceful, fun, uh, loving people. They have all the skills uh, essentially within them that you do or I do or the people we know in our communities, but their community has a big pull on them. And um, and so what I like about my book is while it's um, in some ways I really bear my own soul about trying to search for my own identity, it's, I'm hoping in that um, openness of a subject that's often not talked about that it will help other people say, you know, I'm not the only one who's searching uh, for more or who's thinking about who I am, and it will give people uh, more permission. Uh, if someone from a perceived position of um, power or respect, like I might be in certain circles here in Maine, for example, if someone uh, like me can, can just open up and talk about these things, I'm hoping it will help others um, do the same. The, the entire premise of the book, um, Not For Sale, um, is, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, based on the fact that the government paid people, um, Native Americans, for their lands, but that they actually, in this particular case, and I think in many cases, they the Native Americans refused to take the money because they said, well, this land was never for sale. You're, you're just taking something that we now can't use the way that we wanted to, and you're giving us money, but that that's just not possible. And so, you know, and, and you're, you actually suggest in the book that, um, listen, guys, you guys kind of need this money now. You know, you've held it in trust for, I don't know, like 120 years or even longer. You should probably take this money because this is something that could really benefit you. But that, that is a long time to hold on to, to something that you believe in so strongly. Right. And the biggest thing um, I feel they're holding on to that hasn't yet been reconciled is the, is the past. So as you say, that's what happened in 1980. The Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, ruled that the um, Sioux Indians had had their land taken without just compensation in violation of their Fifth Amendment rights, and they awarded the court awarded damages, but the tribes wouldn't take the money. They said, no, you don't understand. Our land is not for sale. And I love the um, spirit of that, you know, the the values of that. But, um, but the price for growth is giving up your, your grievances. And part of what has to happen at uh, Pine Ridge is the people that live there have to... Um, they have to let go a little bit more of the injustices of the past and start to look a little bit more at the own their own um at the fact that their own really salvation and future lies within them and um and start to move on and so to me as long as they don't take the money and that settlement hangs out there. It's just an attachment to the past. It's not so much about the money for me as it is about um, releasing the past, coming to terms with the past for the sake of releasing it, for the sake of moving forward. Because, again, we all come from a tribe. Well, that's what I was just thinking about, is this is something, you know, you wrote about your father in very few paragraphs, very few sentences, and it's clear that you love him. 
and you start with love this man you end with love this man and in there there are some I, I think very difficult to write sentences about how his influence on your life maybe wasn't entirely positive and for you to have to like let go of whatever whatever it was to sort of move forward even in your own life and even in your own role as the head of Hancock Lumber. Right. That must have been very interesting. Yeah, and it's difficult to even uh, sort out and um but but what I really what I really came to feel is that it wasn't actually anything that he had done or hadn't done. It was how I unbeknownst to me had internalized the responsibility of being um his eldest son and feeling uh, responsibility for um, that legacy in this tribe and the and the company, which again is hard to describe because so much of that is uh, really fun and exciting and um, valuable to me and meaningful, and I feel blessed for it. But um, but I went a little too far with it where where I. Um, <clears throat> where it was really consuming me, and I was losing a bit of my own um, identity. And the Lakota have a great, um, well, one of their sacred rites is the uh, the vision quest, one of their seven sacred rites, which um, which they, they call Hamblechia. And the concept of a vision quest is that individuals coming of age or at critical moments of their life would leave their community and sequester themselves in nature alone without food, water, uh, or any provisions for the purpose of um, seeking a deeper understanding of who they were, where they were at that point in their life, and where they wanted to go. And then that tribe member was to come back to the tribe and live in accordance with their own callings. So the real fundamental notion there was that the, um, well, it's Rudyard Kipling's, uh, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and that if each individual was powerful, free, expressing themselves, that's when the tribe becomes most powerful. And I really came to see this for myself, too, that I, what I needed to do, as counterintuitive as it sounds, was um, serve myself more. And if I found what was really calling to me, that would, in turn, become the, be the most powerful way for the longest period of time to serve others. And uh, I would also send out my thanks to your wife, who very patiently, um, oh, I don't know, was in this journey with you by saying, Kevin, go ahead, go do what you need to do. And eventually, you actually brought her back out again to visit all of these places that became so important to you. So even just having that latitude, that flexibility within your relationship, I'm certain was um, meant a lot. Yeah, I dedicated the book to my wife, Allison, because... Um with, without her support, um, to, she really, if anything, pushed me to keep going back, keep writing, keep leaving. You know, I'd leave the family and the community for a week at a time, two or three times a year, and it um, <clears throat> it would look, you know, looks like a, a a guy just in the in the middle of a midlife crisis, right? And and my wife was so uh, so so supportive of what I was doing, and her. Um, freedom for me to pursue this is 
a large piece of what made it possible. I don't know if that circle would have been completed without um, her. I'm really blessed that she is with me and I'm with her and that she saw it that way. Kevin, how can people find out more about Hancock Lumber and or your book? So you can learn about the book and order the book at www.kevindhancock.com. Kevindhancock.com. You can also buy it on Amazon at other bookstores in Maine. But on that website, I see all those orders and I sign all those books personally. So that's a great way to get get the book. And to find out more about Hancock Lumber in general? Yeah, so you can uh, find out more about Hancock Lumber at www.hancocklumber.com. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. And having spent some time living with this book that you wrote, because it, it's considerable. This, if, you, if, if those of you who are listening who go out and get Kevin's book, and I hope there are many that will want to do this, it's an investment. This is an investment. But one well worth making because... Um, it just, it's so, there's something so um, raw and wonderful about this experience that you've gone through and your willingness to share this with people is, um, I think it's significant. So we've been speaking with Kevin Hancock, who is president of Hancock Lumber. He is uh, working with his sixth generation family business. He's operated since 1848, not him personally, but others in his family also father to two lovely daughters and husband thanks so much for coming in and being part of the the story that we're sharing on the radio show but also thanks so much for um spending the time to do things that you feel passionate about and sharing that story through your book not for sale i appreciate you inviting me and as the uh the lakota say wopila tonka which means big thanks love main radio is brought to you by mac page an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage. Accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You've been listening to Love, Main Radio, show number 216, Spiritual Essence. Our guests have included Reverend Jacob Watson and Kevin Hancock. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. They are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Spiritual Essence show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bella. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com.